the reason I asked Don to do a good job, he has a tendency to slack off when he comes up here. <laughs> and I just want to be an encouragement to the man. Do a good job. What do you want me to say? Break a leg or, you know, fall on your face? No, I... <laughs> We're in Genesis this morning, chapter 15. Hopefully we'll finish the chapter today. But uh, we've looked at verses 1 through 6, and we see that Abram has been given a promise by God, and then God takes him outside, removes him from his uh, little environment, probably removes him from his tent, and he's told by God, look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able. Well, if you've ever been out in the country where there's not any artificial light, you realize what a daunting task that would be to try to count the stars. But uh, that loses some meaning with a lot of people today because we have inner city kids and and adults that have never seen the stars because of the city lights. Can you imagine? Never have seen the stars. God tells Abram, come on outside, look up towards the heavens, the heavens that I created, Abram. And then we have this transformation taking place in Abram's life. It says, Abram believes. And sometimes we have to have a change of circumstance, a change of our environment. We have to remove our eyes, our attention away from something that is troubling us where we can see properly. Out on our farm, we have a little farm that most of you are aware of. We have a one mercury vapor light out there, a security light. And that one artificial light keeps us from seeing the stars as we should. But Abram has no artificial light that we know of out there in the wilderness. And the stars are big and bright to Abram. And God says to him, count them, Abram, if you can. Now, we don't know if Abram understood that the earth spins on its axis, new stars coming into view, others passing from view. But God has Abram looking up. And when Abram looks up, his whole perspective changes. Maybe you and I need to look up when God has given us a promise and not trust in the circumstance, but trust in the God of creation. But Abram looks up and he now believes God. And it took Abram to see God's creation for him to believe. God has placed thousands of stars in view for Abram. And this somehow sparks a belief in Abram's heart. 
And by simply believing God's promises, Abram is then accounted righteous. Everything in our personal relationship with God is based upon believing. Everything we do with God is based upon us believing. Going from unbelief or doubting to believing is a great thing. And all the so-called facts of mankind that we call science, science either pushes us away from believing or it pushes us towards believing. Consider the theory and it is a theory, by the way, of evolution. It is now taught in schools as fact, but it's really a theory. And our schools, unfortunately, don't even mention creation, and yet we hear different supposed scientists claiming that creation is a theory. But God being a creator is a theme that it runs throughout the Bible. Hundreds of times God is mentioned as either creator or maker. Evolution, however, or the sacred cow of time and chance, you know, they always, given enough time, given enough chance, all things can happen, happens to be a lie from the pit of hell. A lie that appeals to man's intellect, or at least to a person's intellect that has rejected God as creator. And Abraham, when seeing the heavens, the stars that God has created, he goes, hey, I believe. And this act of believing transforms Abram's eternity. Believing changes our eternal destination. Just the act of my will choosing to believe versus being doubting changes my eternity. Could God make it any easier for man to enter his heaven? Consider what has just happened to Abram. By believing, Abram has gone from a, being appointed to death and separation from God to a future of being with God eternally in God's heaven. A believing heart is the most precious thing any human being can possess. Just a believing heart. Believing, however, it isn't simply a mindset adjustment. Believing dictates a way of life. How simple, how revolutionary believing is in a life. The Apostle Paul and Silas, they're thrown into a Philippian jail, a Philippian prison, They've been beaten with rods, and at midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. 
The other prisoners in the prison are listening with great interest to Paul and Silas. And suddenly there's a great earthquake. This earthquake is so strong that all the cell doors open and all the chains fall off of the prisoners. That's quite a quake, by the way. <laughs> the doors of everyone's cell is open, the chains are loosened, and the chief jailer, when he sees that the doors of the prison are open, thinking that the prisoners have escaped, he draws his sword to kill himself. And in that time, if you lost a prisoner, you had to pay the price of your prisoner. And some of these prisoners were sentenced to death. Therefore, the jailer is willing to kill himself versus going through being uh, tortured and killed by the other authorities. But Paul cries out to him, do yourself no harm. We are all here. What a statement by Paul. This is a miracle in and of itself that the prisoners that the chains have fell off of have not escaped. They haven't ran. They're still there. They're captivated by this Paul and Silas singing and praising God. The jailer, he realizes that, you know, this is a miracle. And he runs to Paul with a light, falls down before Paul and says, wow, that was some earthquake, wasn't it? No. He didn't even ask, did your God send this earthquake? No. The jailer cuts to the chase. And he has, a, in a moment, he's understood. Paul and Silas are servants of the Most High God. And the jailer has one question. One question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, Paul could have said a lot of different things, couldn't he? Be baptized, join the church, live a clean, godly life. No, those are fruits of being saved or believing. But believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is the turning point in any life. Where by the grace and power of God, we go from death and destruction to life. Now we call that transformation being born again. That's one of those Christian terms we use. But the moment, the very moment that Abram fully accepted the Lord by belief, it is accounted to him as righteousness. The Philippian jailer and his whole household are brand new Christians because they believed. Simply because they believed. The plan of salvation is so simple, so very straightforward. It is believe and be saved. It was true for the Philippian jailer and his family. It was true for Abram, and it's true for you and I. Believe and be saved. And when Abram believes, God says, I'm glad you believed, Abram, so I'm going to establish a covenant with you. And that's where we pick up. That was the longest lead-in I've ever had to a sermon, I think. We're going to now pick up 
Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. <clears throat> Genesis 15, 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. <clears throat> now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, Horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nations whom they serve I will judge, afterwards that they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, speaking to Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces." On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadamonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgishites, and the Jebedites. And we might want to throw in the termites, but we won't. All the ites are in there. God says to Abram, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was an area in Babylon heavily into idol worship. Like Abram, I feel like the Lord has brought me out of the land of idol worship. I moved here from California, see? Some of you have done the same thing. <laughs> California happens to be a liberal political mess, in my humble opinion. But God brought Abram to Cana to bless him and to give him a homeland, to which Abram, believing Abram, he replies, how are you going to do this? Or how shall I know this is from you, Lord? That comes from a believing heart, not a doubting heart. Abram is simply asking God, how are you going to do this? Abram simply wants to know how God will give him the land, not if God will give him the land. For Abram is now a believer. God will now allow Abram to witness a sacred ceremony, a God-established covenant with these animals, and how different that is 
from the way we do covenants or contracts today. We draw up contracts, we go before an attorney, we receive deeds of trust and that kind of thing. And we have a piece of paper that says we are rightful owners of whatever. A little more involved for Abram. Abram is to slaughter a three-year-old heifer. That's simply a cow. A goat, a ram, and he is to also kill a turtle dove and a pigeon. He is to cut these animals in half, except for the birds. And he's to place the halves opposite each other on an altar. After he kills these animals, the only responsibility that Abram has in this covenant is to drive away the vultures or the birds. That is his only responsibility. This is a God-given covenant. Normally speaking, two parties would do this to seal a contract or an oath to one another, and they would walk a figure eight in between these body parts that are on an altar burning as an incense to the Lord. But notice verse 17. A smoking oven, a burning torch, is what passes between the animal halves. The oven and the torch represent God. Abram, he is only a witness. He is not a participant. He is not walking between the halves. Only God walks between the half. Abram simply watches. He is an observer. In verses 12 through 16, God has a word of prophecy for Abram. <clears throat> and God sets the mood for Abram. God has some dire predictions for Abram, and God wants Abram to remember this, and God sets the scene. A deep sleep falls on Abram, and it says horror and great darkness also fall upon Abram. I think that's God's way of getting Abram to remember what he's going to tell him. So God initiates this dark setting around Abram. God has something very important to say to Abram, and God is, well, he's being dramatic, if you will, in his presentation of this news to Abram. Now, we all go to movies, we've all watched movies, and we realize when something bad is coming, the music will get heavier, the lighting will get darker. And that's sort of what God has done for Abram him here. He's set the scene for Abram to tell him bad news. And God speaks and God says, your descendants will be strangers in this land and they will be afflicted 400 years by their masters. That's bad news. But I will bring them out. I will bring them out of their bondage and the, and they will have great possessions. And this is for Abram's descendants. And we know by history that the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians for 400 years, just like God tells Abram, before they returned to Canaan, the land of promise. 
Then he says, but you, Abram, you will go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. And then God established this, this covenant with Abram and his, and his descendants. And all Abram is, is a witness. Why is that important? Because most covenants involve a two-party deal. God says, this is my doing. I will do it. All you have to do, Abram, is believe. No requirement on Abram's part whatsoever. God is simply saying, this covenant is my doing. And here we are, 2013 A.D. And we live in a new covenant with Christ as our propitiation for our sins. Jesus being our sacrifice, the satisfaction of God's wrath towards sin satisfied by Jesus. And again, our salvation is simply looking upon the cross and by faith accepting the work of redemption done for us by Jesus. Or simply believing and being saved. We as Christians readily accept the work of the cross. But to many people, this is foolishness. It's foolishness. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 23, you may want to turn there. Paul will talk about the message of the cross and he will talk about the effect that it has upon the Jew, and he'll talk about the effect that it has on the Greek. So, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 23. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, and Paul's talking about the cross, to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. And you might add, to many acquaintances or friends, it is also foolishness. But for us who are being saved, what a blessing. The way of salvation is foolishness to many people that we know. But I like the fact that it's pleasing to God to save us by simply believing. Believing on the work of Christ on the cross, foolishness to the Jews, because they desire a sign, some outward manifestation of God's power. The Greeks, 
who were into all their mythology and all that, their legendary gods like Aphrodite and Zeus and all those, they also look at the cross as foolishness. The gospel, God's gift to man by simply believing, stumbled many people who considered themselves wise. The gospel, it is so simple that a child readily accepts Jesus as Savior. A child is so willing to believe. It's when we grow old and callous that believing becomes difficult. Consider Jesus' last words on the cross. He simply said, it is finished. That means nothing can ever be added to the work of the cross. It's a done deal. It's finished. Yet mankind, religion, even many Christian so-called religious groups try to add to the free gift of salvation and they do it all the time. Because I think there's some innate desire by man to help God by adding rules and regulations to a finished work of the cross. We want to add things like believe in Christ, that's good, believe in the cross, but you've got to be baptized. Believe on the work of Christ, but, you know, we're told we've got to be good witnesses every day. Believe on the work of the cross, but clean up your act. Don't cuss, don't gamble, don't lust, don't be envious, don't be greedy. And we add these things. Be a church member. Let me take you back to Paul's word. Paul is speaking to a Philippian jailer, and Paul simply says, Believe, and you shall be saved. Nothing else. What if God would have added one little requirement on our part to being saved? One little outward sign that would be something that everybody would recognize and say that we're Christians. Like, say he said, wear a heavy wooden cross and everybody will know you're a Christian. We would soon be wearing crosses so heavy that we couldn't lift our heads. We would certainly overdo the cross. We would get crosses. Well, my cross is gold-plated. Or my cross was given to me by my grandmother, who was a godly woman. Where'd you get your cross? And the cross itself would become this gigantic burden that God never intended it to be. 
the work on the cross is the power of God unto salvation. You and I, all we have to do is simply believe and be saved. That's it. That's it. The good works, the sanctification that goes on, that's the work of the Lord in our life. But to be saved, all we have to do is believe. And I'm so glad God kept it so simple. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. If you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, which simply means to trust and rely upon him, do so now. As I pray, you can become a believer. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful that you didn't put any bur burdens upon us to do certain things. You simply said, believe and be saved. Jesus, you came and said, believe in me. You believe in the Father, believe in me. And so by an act of our will, by that good work that you've done in our heart, we here this morning are believers. And we thank you for keeping it simple. We thank you for making your salvation the greatest gift known to man, so simple, to participate in by an act of our will, by believing. Thank you, Lord, for keeping it simple. We're for eternally grateful, Lord. Throughout the ages, we will rejoice that all we had to do is believe. Thank you again. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross securing our salvation and all we have to do is believe and be saved thank you lord it's in your name we pray jesus amen the lord bless you and keep you